Well, we're going to try to close out Judges tonight, just because it's all kind of one continuous story, these three chapters. Um, and just a word of warning, um, this is not a, uh, this is a very uh, um, sick part of Scripture, 19, 20, and 21. It's just disgusting, some of the things we're going to be reading, but it's it's part of the Word of God, and it that's the one thing that makes the Bible real is that it, it tells both the good things and the bad things. And this really will show us the tragic consequences of sin. What happens when people reject God's authority in their hearts, first of all, and in, in their own community? And uh, it's, it's really a um, sad part of, of Scripture, but, and you'll see why as we read through this. But uh, it's really about anarchy, what's going on here. Uh, the word anarchy is, is made up of, of the compound word, an, and, and, and archos, and an means no, obviously, it negates whatever you're going to put it in front of, and archos means ruler or chief. And so here, the portion of scripture we're going to read is really a segment of society that is without any rules, without any ruler, without any chief. It's kind of like if you're, can you imagine playing a football game with no rules? I mean, it might be fun, but it would be chaotic if there were just no rules at all, or if you pulled up to an intersection and there were no rules. You know, you had four cars pull up at the same time. What do you do? Uh, you probably would make your way through it, but it would probably leave a lot of people with frustration and ultimately doing whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. Well, here tonight, Israel, we have a nation with no rules. They don't want to follow God. Um, there's no leadership over them. And the Bible has said this throughout the book of Judges. Um, as it says right there in the verse 1, in those days there was no king in Israel. And the remainder of that phrase uh, in other places says, and every man does was doing what is right in their own eyes. They didn't look to God for authority. They did whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. And so here we have this last story, this segment of Judges, and it really brings the culmination, the horrible conditions that prevailed in the nation of Israel right before the rise of the monarchy. And there was chaos, there was lawlessness, and anarchy. And I, I was amazed as I was reading this this week and how it correlates even to our own society today. Uh, what's been going on. But as we read through this, I just pray that, you know, the Holy Spirit will filter our hearts and our minds because some of this stuff is kind of graphic and it's disgusting, frankly, but it is the Word of God. So follow along and we're going to read chapter 19 and we'll say a couple words about that and then we're going to try to read through chapter 20, say a couple words about that and then chapter 21. And in the end, we'll draw some basic principles out of this. But overall, we're just going to be reading the text so I pray that you follow along in your Bibles or listen attentively as we read it to you. So in Judges chapter 19, remember Israel's been in this cycle, okay, of they, they, they have a relationship with God, they're doing fine, and then they fall back into idol worship. They fall away from the Lord. They, they do things that are displeasing to God. And God has to judge them, and he judges them. And then they cry out, for God's mercy, and God raises up a judge. That's why it's called judges. And he raised up these judges, and the judges would uh, set things right for a period of time, 
and they would come back under and be reconciled back to God, but then they would repeat the same thing over and over and over throughout this book. And this is really what has been going on for the first, you know, uh, 16 chapters of Judges. And then everything past that is kind of an epilogue. It kind of goes back. All these things that we're going to read about happened earlier in the book of Judges. It's kind of like an appendix. Like, by the way, I just want to include this one last story. And some commentaries stop, right, with Samson and the story of Samson and Delilah. They stop there because what we're going to read is, is you'll, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. So in verse 1 there, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remotest part of the hill country of Ephraim. Remember, the Levites were supposed to stay with the temple. They were to care for the temple, uh, the tabernacle and things like that. They, they weren't supposed to be out sojourning in the remotest parts of the hill country of Ephraim. They had a role that they were supposed to be playing. But remember, because of the spiritual condition of Israel, uh, the Levites had no land. They had no real property or whatever. They were supported by the other tribes giving their offerings to the temple and whatnot. Well, apparently, uh, spiritually, Israel was in such decline that nobody was giving anything. So some of these men, rather than being obedient to God and just trust him and stay put and do their ministry that they were given, uh, they started to get hungry and they thought, you know what, I'm going to go look for some other jobs. And so that's what this guy was doing. Well, here he says he took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. That means he was married and he took someone else. All right, and his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house. Now, a lot of people, there's two different views here. In the original Hebrew, the word unfaithful can also mean, um, there's another word that's similar, like it's one letter off. I'm not going to get into the technical stuff, but that, that, that word can mean angry. So whether she was literally immoral, unfaithful to her, to her master um, sexually, or if she was just angry, either way, she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem. So she went back to daddy in Judah and was there some four months. So it's very specific. It gives the four months there. Um, So there's a, a period of separation for them. Then her husband arose and went after her. So here comes the Levite thinking, hey, I gotta win her back. Um, That's why some people think maybe she was just angry. uh, To speak kindly to her and bring her back. And he had with him his servant and a couple donkeys, indicating that this guy was pretty wealthy. Um, Even though he didn't have a job and he was out wandering around, he did have a servant and several donkeys, so he must have saved up some money or something to be out traveling around the countryside. And she brought him into her father's house. So somehow, he won her back, and she said, I want you to meet my dad, and there they go. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. Why? Because up to this point, her daughter would have been a shame upon the family because she was (laughs) this guy's concubine, but he wouldn't even have her, apparently, because she didn't have anybody at this time. So now, all of a sudden, he's back in the picture so the father's kind of happy, and how much he knows about the relationship, it's not really sure, but he was glad to see that um, uh, her daughter, his daughter was with at least what he considered her husband. He came with joy to meet him in, in verse 4, and his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. 
and he remained with him three days. So the idea is, is somehow he talked him into staying a couple days with him. They ate, they drank, they spent the night there. Verse 5, and on the fourth day they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go, but the girl's father said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. He didn't want him to leave. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. So you can see this guy's rather impressionable. He doesn't really have a plan. He wakes up in the morning. He wants to leave. And the father-in-law apparently must have had some good drink or something. But whatever, they stuck around together. And on the, on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. That's bad advice. In that part of the world, you never wanted to be traveled late in the day or the evening or worst case scenario at night because you would get robbed you could get killed there's a lot of things that could happen bad things happen at night and that's what uh this father was was saying hey just wait wait a little longer you know and uh, uh you can leave later so they ate both of them and when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart his father-in-law the girl's father said to him behold now the day is waning toward evening please spend the night Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He was tired. He said, no, I'm not going to do this again. You know, you've talked me out of this four times. I'm done. He rose up and he departed, verse 10, and arrived opposite Jebus, which is Jerusalem. Another name for Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem wasn't a, uh, it was it was a, a was not an Israeli city at that time, okay? And so we'll, we'll see what happens here. But it says he had come, he had with him a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was with him. Verse 11, and when they were near Jebus or Jerusalem, uh, the day was nearly over. And the servant said to his master, come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites, that's who dwelled there, and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, we will not turn aside into a city of foreigners. So this guy has a concubine, uh, which is not allowed for someone in, 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 as a Levite. That was forbidden. But he does it, and now he's all concerned about spending time with foreigners. That sounds a little legalistic to me. But who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So he kind of throws out a couple different options there. And he says, we're not staying here in Jerusalem because these, these people are not welcoming to us. We're going to move on. And so they passed, verse 14, and they went on their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah. So it's getting dark, which belongs to Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in, thinking, hey, this is a friendly place. We can go in and uh, we'll, we'll, uh, they'll welcome us and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and he sat down in the open square of the city. Now, back then, they didn't have Hampton Inns or anything like that. So when you, 
when you went to a city, you would go to the town square. Usually you would go there during the day, not at night, but you would be there during the day and people would see you. They, they would know you're visiting this town because everybody knew everybody. And they'd say, do you have a place to stay? And obviously you would say, no, I don't. Well, welcome to my house. And they would have you over for dinner and let you lodge there uh, for the evening or whatever you needed. It was just a customary thing. It was, it was something that was done in the, the Middle East, and, and it still is today. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Lone Survivor, you remember the one seal that was left was protected um, by, by someone in that region, even though the Taliban wanted to come and, and, you know, take him away or whatever, uh, they said, no, 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 that, it doesn't work that way. We, we are his protectors. You can't do this. It's just a, a common uh, kind of a hospitality thing. You take care of your visitors. And so here they are in the middle of this uh, square. And um, it says that... Uh, um, he sat in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. So no one would offer any hospitality. That's the whole reason they went there. They thought that these people would welcome us. Well, finally, verse 16, Behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. So he's coming in from the fields, and the man was from the hill country of Ephraim. He, didn't, um, he wasn't a citizen here of Gibeah. He was just had a temporary residence there because he obviously had some fields he was taking care of in the area. So he would go to Gibeah and lodge there. And he probably knew what kind of town it was. He knew who the, the movers and the shakers were in the town. And he saw this guy sitting out in the town square. And he realized, wow, this guy's in a world of hurt because he thinks people are going to help him. But I know what these people are like in this town. And uh, it says, the man was from the hill country of Ephraim. He was sojourning in Gibeah. He was just spending the night there uh, temporarily, a temporary resident, you might say. The men of the place were Benjamites. So it's, it separates him, this old man, was not a Benjamite. All right. In verse 17, and he lifted up his eyes and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old, mo- the old man walked over to him and he said, where are you going? You know, what are you doing sitting here in the middle of the night? And where do you come from? And the Levi said, he said, uh, he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem to Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah and I am going to the house of the Lord. Now, whether he was literally going to the house of the Lord, which I think would have been in Shiloh at this time, or he was just referring to his Levitical uh, duties, um, who knows? But no one has taken me into his house. He states the obvious. These people are not very hospitable to me. Nobody's taken me into the house. Verse 19. We have straw. We have feed for our donkeys. In other words, we don't expect anything. We just want kind of a roof over our head. He says, we have straw. We have feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. In other words, hey, I got everything. I just need a place to stay. There is no lack of anything. Verse 20, and the old man said, peace be to you. In other words, that's okay, I'm going to take care of you. Uh, that's kind of the way they would phrase that. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. You can't sleep here, is what the old man was saying. You do, you're going to be in a world of hurt. So he brought him into his house, and he gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet, 
and he ate and he drank. So this old man is a real servant here. He's really reaching out to this stranger. And we think, boy, that's kind of an odd thing. But, you know, we live in America. You know, it's not an odd thing in some countries. When, when foreigners see someone who's not from their country and, um, you know, you try to help that person out. I remember when we were down in Honduras, we, we saw a, a girl who was, she came up to us and she spoke English. And I think she was from Holland or someplace, Sweden or someplace like that. But it was all these riots were going on in Honduras and she had never seen guns like there were on the streets in Honduras at the time. She goes, everybody's got guns, you know. She goes, I just got to get back to Belize where my friends are. I came over here just to see this part of the country, but I'm stuck here now because they, all the roads are closed. And she was terrified. And so the missionaries that were with us said, hey, you know what? You can't be out here wandering around. You're going to be in a world of hurt. This is a very dangerous place. So we put her up in a hotel um, for the night and got her on her way the next morning with a, a, a taxi that the missionaries knew that took her back to the border. And she said she didn't care what border. She said, I, I just want to get out of Honduras. <laughs> she was just terrified. Okay. And, and that's kind of the hospitality mentality. Um, you know, when you see someone in need, you help them. Well, here in this, in this area, these people weren't like that. They were more apt to take advantage of you, as we're going to find out. So here they are in the man's house. They think everything's fine. Maybe the old man was kind of worried, but uh, the, the, the Levite and the, their guests were fine. And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows. Now, when it says worthless fellows, it means these are, are real dirtbags. These are the worst of the worst. Okay? Um, they have no, no um, qualms about hurting anybody. They don't care. They're, they're very evil people. It says they surrounded the house, beating on the door. I mean, it's not just a little knock. I mean, they were beating on the door. And as we read through this, you're going to find, wow, doesn't this sound like something else that we read in Genesis before? Yes, with Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, the whole lot deal, right? Exactly. It's it's almost exactly worded the same, everything. Um, But here they are beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out that man who came into your house that we may violate him, that we may know him. This is homosexual behavior on steroids. This is just over the top. Verse 23, and the man, the master of the house, went out to them as he was bound to do because you had to protect your guests. You couldn't just give them out, give them up. That would have been dishonorable. So the master of the house, he went out to them, and he said, no, my brothers. He tries to kind of, you know, uh, kind of align himself with them, even though he disagreed with them. He said, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. In other words, this is something that violates every aspect of the word of God. You can't do this. 24, behold, and this is where it gets kind of weird, but culturally, this is what they would do. All right, you just have to understand this. Women had a different status in their culture than they do today. Uh, verse 24, behold, here are my, is my virgin daughter and his concubine. So this man is actually offering his virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine to protect this Levite who's a guest in his home. 
That's, that's how serious they took this idea of, of protecting someone that you've, you've offered hospitality to, uh, to the point where you'd even offer your own virgin daughters to these sickos. He's let me let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Now this is just sickening, but this is what happens when God does not have his proper place in the hearts and minds of men and women. You have sin going over the edge. You have it's just outrageous. Verse 25, but the men would not listen to him. So he's offering them, the, the virgin daughter and the concubine, they don't want to hear it. Uh, so the man, and it's not the old man. Okay, the Hebrew grammar here indicates the man here is the Levite. The Levite seized his concubine and made her go out to them. Now, I mean, pretty much he's just giving her up for dead for the most part. And, and this is supposed to be a Levite. This is supposed to be someone who is, is caring for the things of God at the temple. And it, it's hard to understand, but you know what? It, it just points out that titles mean nothing. Positions need, mean nothing. That when sin goes wild, it can go wild anywhere. In the hearts of a pastor, in the hearts of a priest, in the hearts of a Levite, in the hearts of whoever. And this man basically put her, his concubine, made her go out to them, indicating she didn't want to, obviously. It says, and they knew her and they abused her all night until morning, raped her. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. That's why I say bad things happen at night. You know, as a youth pastor, I always told parents, bad things happen at night. You know, your kids don't need to be out till 2 in the morning. Bad things are going to happen to them. Or they're going to be around things that are happening that are bad. You know, put a curfew on them. Have them in the house by 9 or 10. Or at least know where they're at and what they're doing. Bad things always happen at night. Ask any police officer. So here, it says, as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down she found she came back and she found the door of the man's house where where they were where her master was fell down until it was light and this just kind of reveals even more the heart of this levite and her master rose up in the morning i mean i think this is a guy that went back and found this lady <laughs> this concubine to win her back and then he just gives her away to these hideous men to do whatever they want with her. And it just blows my mind that he doesn't even, I mean, apparently he had a good night's sleep. I mean, this is how sick this, this guy is. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, he, he didn't even, he wasn't even thinking of the concubine. I mean, that's, that's just so hard to understand. But you know what? This mentality is very prevalent even in our society today. You know, there's people that are out there preying on women, and, you know, they talk them into whatever, and they think, wow, this is the guy for me, and boy, as soon as the act is done, boy, they're on to the next person. 
and they leave them just as quick as they, they hooked up with them. And it's sad. It's heartbreaking. But this guy just rises up in the morning. He goes out. He opens the doors of the house. He went to go on his way. And behold, there was a concubine lying at the door of the house. So he opens up the door, and there she is. She's lying there with her hands on the threshold. And that indicates that somehow she was trying to get back in the house at some point throughout the evening. But they were too busy partying it up and snoring, I guess, to hear what was going on. Now remember, this wasn't just one or two people. This was a, kind of a, a mad uh, riot going on. You know, when they came in, they, they beat on his door initially. So there was a lot of ruckus going on. And I'm sure at some point throughout the evening, the ruckus died down. And you would think that you would say, well, I'm going to go check on her and see if she's okay. <laughs> he didn't care. And there he finds her, laying on the porch there with her hand on the threshold. And this just blows my mind. Verse 28, he said to her, get up, let us go be going. I mean, how demeaning. I mean, this guy is really sick. You know, he doesn't even have the common courtesy to ask, are you okay? Are you? I mean, he had no, no qualms of, of just, hey, get up, come on, we got to go. But there was no answer. Well, he's dead. She's dead, that's why. Maybe if he would have been a little more caring and got out there a couple hours earlier, maybe she would have still been alive. But now she's dead. He put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And this is where it gets tough. Because we, we don't, I, I don't even claim to understand. You know, this. it's a matter of, he's making a statement here, I get that part, but it's just kind of strange what we're going to read. So just prepare your hearts. Verse 29, and when he entered his house, he takes the dead concubine back to his house. He says, it says he took a knife, taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. Now remember, he's around the temple all the time. He knew how to slaughter animals. He knew how to, you know, and when it says limb by limb, it means kind of bone by bone where the, the joints are, they divide them up. That's what he did to her dead body. I mean, thank God she was dead at this point. I don't think he would have done it otherwise. She is dead. He cuts her up. He sends her out to the uh, divides her limb by limb to 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. What's he doing? He's making a statement against the people that did this to her. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. I told you it was going to be a weird, weird passage of Scripture, right? It's sick. You know, the Levitic, the, the, the Levite shouldn't even have had a, any kind of relationship with this concubine. He was not supposed to be doing that. Um, however, in Leviticus 21, where it talks about um, 
widow and divorced women or defiled women or, or, or women who are prostitutes, that kind of thing. Um, it says they shouldn't marry them, um, but they're to take a, a virgin of his own people as a wife. But ironically, back in Leviticus, it didn't say anything about concubines. So maybe this was a Levitical loophole. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know how he was, came to, to get into this situation. But like I said, hospitality was prime in this, this Eastern etiquette. This is what they would do. And this man, this old man, was willing to protect his visitor and forsake the weak and the helpless. That doesn't necessarily make it right, by the way. It doesn't make it pleasing to God. But it shows you what happens to people when God is removed from a society and from the human heart. You know, we, we hear about things like this, you know, you see these crazy shows on TV, where, you know, criminals and their behavior and all this stuff, and some of these people are just sick. And you think, how could somebody do something like this? It's like a bad episode of Criminal Minds or something. But this was a symbolic act. In other words, if Israel had failed to help him take revenge on the people who who did this to his concubine, they would suffer the same fate as his concubine. In other words, you better beware. We can't let this just go. And that's, you know, what I'm saying is a lot of what we see going on in the world around us today, people are just choosing to let it go. Yeah, you can break into a business and steal whatever you want and burn the business down, or you can go and kill people. And you know what? There's no consequences anymore for anything. It's the tragic consequences of sin. Saul did a similar thing to unite Israel later. He did this same thing. He cut up, not an individual, but he cut up... um, uh, the oxen and he, he sent it out as a as a as a symbolic act to all of Israel. But here it was actually this poor lady. So you see the, the rape of this concubine, the, the everything, it just shows the moral depravity that Israel has reached a new low. And what's interesting when you look at Genesis nineteen and by the way, it is Genesis 19 and Judges 19. They both have the same, a similar account down to the, the same amount of words being used in the original Hebrew. That's how similar the accounts are. It's, it's pretty amazing if you do a study on that. But it shows us how Israel has fallen. Why? Because they became their own law. Everybody was doing what they thought was right in their own mind. They had their own law, they had their own social order, they had their own basic morality. And you know what? Morality really didn't exist. Because your morality may not be my morality. And it just goes to show when when humankind and human beings are left to their own devices, what happens? They fall into unimaginable sin. Things that we can't even conceive of. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's 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 a really sick part of scripture. 
But what this does is it leads to a civil war within the nation of Israel. Um, and that's, we'll read chapter 20 and talk about this a little bit. And, and here it's, it's important to kind of follow the text along because it really shows that Israel was united on this front except of the tribe of Benjamin who were the tribe where these men who originally did this horrific act to this concubine um, uh, were from. So you had 11 tribes against one. So in verse 1 of chapter 20, it says, Then all the pe- people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba. I mean, you know, you get, they get a piece of an individual in the mail <laughs> saying, Look, somebody, I need some help here. Somebody did this including the land of Gilead and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mitzvah. So they were united on this. They were outraged at this. And the chiefs of all the people and all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. They gathered together. They were going to have a big meeting. 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. So they came out in force. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mitzvah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? They're asking the Levite, what, what exactly happened here? And the Levite, verse 4, the husband of the woman who was murdered, this is the first time it says she was murdered, it uses that word, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin. He's t- retelling the whole story. I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me. And they violated my concubine. And she is dead. Kind of interesting, he leaves out the part. Yeah, I kind of threw her out to them so they wouldn't get to me. (laughs) He leaves that out. I mean, you know, this kind of shows you what kind of guy this is. He's definitely painting this in a positive light to make him look like a pretty good guy, what he's not. And that's what sin does. It blinds us to our own depravity. Verse 6, he says, So I took hold of my concubine and I cut her into pieces. He leaves out the part of finding her and all that stuff. And sent her throughout the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed an abomination and an outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, they're all united, saying, none of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. In other words, this is what we're going to do to these people that did this. We will go up against them by lot. So we're going to figure out who's going to go. We're not all going to go. We're We're going to see who the Lord sends. Verse 10, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel and a hundred of a thousand and a thousand of ten thousand to bring provisions for the people that when they come they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So they're trying to correct this wrong. Verse 11, so all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. Verse 12, and the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin saying, what evil is this that has taken place among you? In other words, we, we want to know what's going on here. Now, therefore, give up the men. Whoever raped this concubine and killed her, we want the men that did this. We're going to exact revenge. 
those worthless fellows in Gibeah, it says in verse 13, that they may be put to death, which is the right thing to do in this case, and purge evil from Israel. See, they had the mentality that, you know what, you can't let something like this just fester. You can't let something like this just go without dealing with it. See, and this is part of the problem we have in our society today, unfortunately. Um, and I, I think it's done with the idea of being gracious and things like that um, toward criminal behavior. But you know what? There's, there's, there's some people that don't understand the aspect of why God instituted such a thing as a death penalty. Um, you know, and it was to protect the rest of the people in that society. When someone would commit a heinous act taking another life or something like that on purpose, then you know what? They were to give up their life. They, their life was to be taken. And we've changed in society. So now you can, um, you know, you can, you can, you can rape a, a, a girl in a, in, a, in a school bathroom and then go to another school and do the same thing. And the school board says, oh, nothing's happening here. No, 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 until they're found out. I mean, can you imagine being the father of that young girl who was raped by a transgender boy who was wearing a skirt who nowadays can go into the women's bathroom? I mean, I don't know about you, but I do a lot more than shout at a school board meeting. I mean, you know, if they were going to put me in jail, they'd have good reason to. And, and that's the thing that's, that's disheartening is that the outrage is not against the crime or the criminal. The outrage is what? Turned on the people who are saying, wait a minute, this isn't right. And this is what we see going on in our society today. So they said, hey, you know, <clears throat> we're going we're gonna to repay this. Um, we're going to deal with these men who did this. We're going to put them to death. That's what they deserve. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers. They wouldn't listen to them. It says the people of Israel. Um, verse 14, Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. So they're willing to go to battle with their own countrymen before they'll turn over these sickos that abused this, this poor woman, woman and murdered her, basically. I mean, what do we see going on today in society? We see prisons being left open, right? I mean, oh, let, the, let the poor prisoners out. Well, the prisoners are prisoners for a reason. <laughs> they did something wrong. Now, yeah, there may be some in there that, you know, I, they're definitely the minority, but there's some in there that you know what, maybe they're, they overstayed their welcome and, and they do deserve to get out. They paid their, their, their due. But they're not focusing just on people like that. They're, they're letting people out all over the place. And it says, the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men. So there's 26,000 men who were willing to stand up against... Um, the rest of the, all the tribes of Israel to defend these, these sickos, um, a minority. 
that created this, this problem. Besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men, verse 16, all of these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So they were very good with their little slingshot, a sling. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword, and all of these were men of war. So here you have a nation who took their eyes off God. They put their eyes on whatever they wanted to put their eyes on. They did what was right in their own eyes. And now they're willing to go to battle with each other. This is what sin does. This is what the consequences of sin is. Verse 18, the people of Israel rose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God. So the people of Israel here had some sense that, you know what, God, we need your wisdom in this. Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah, you shall go up first. You say, well, how did the Lord say that? Well, they they would use a a thing called the human ermine and the thurman. They they would use this technique that... um, in our, in our, it's kind of like uh, drawing lots or casting lots in our mentality. And somehow God used this to communicate his will to them. Now remember, this is before they had the completed word of God and all that stuff. I wouldn't recommend you going home and casting lots to say, hey, God, what do you want me to do? You know, I don't think we're into putting out fleeces and all that stuff. I think the Lord has revealed his will for us for the most part through his word. But back then, it was kind of a moment-by-moment thing. And so the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. And the people of Israel, verse 19, rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. And the people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed. Look at this. On that day, 22,000 men of the Israelites. They lost 22,000 men in one day. Even though they had, you know, an army of 400,000. They're probably thinking, ah, we got this. God, who do you want to go first? Go knock their lights out. Judah, go for it. All right, no problem. I'll have this over by noon. Well, 22,000 men die. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. So they weren't going to give up this fight. They did have some kind of mortal fortitude inside them that says, no, this right has to be wrong. This, this wrong has to be righted. This, these men cannot be allowed to get away with what they did. This was horrendous. And so they said, hey, we're going to do this again. Verse 23. Um, uh, it says they, they formed, in verse 22, they formed the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up. And look at this time, they wept before the Lord until the evening so they got their 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 cans kicked the first time okay and so this time they're a little more humble about it and they're going hey lord we're going to need your help here they're weeping before the lord until evening and they inquired of the lord shall we again draw near the fight against our brothers the people of benjamin see at first they just kind of went in there just pure Pure outrage, pure anger. We're going we're gonna to right this wrong. And 22,000 men died. So now they're stepping back and they're going, hey, Lord, is this really your will? Is this what you really want us to do? Because we just lost 22,000 men. 
from this little rinky-dinky army here, um, maybe this isn't what we should be doing. And the Lord said, go up against them. At least they were obedient, verse 24. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. So that's, a, what, 40,000 men? Two days? All these were men who drew the sword. They were warriors. These weren't farmers. These were people who knew how to fight. And the Benjamites kicked their can, basically. Verse 26, Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. And they sat there before the Lord. And look at what they do this time. They fasted that day until evening. Oh, and then they also offered burnt offerings. And they also offered peace offerings before the Lord. So they're getting a little more serious as the death toll goes up. They're thinking, well, maybe we don't have this. Maybe we need to inquire the Lord a little bit more. Have you ever been in that situation where you start, you think you, know, you want to do something, you start doing it? And halfway through your project or whatever, you realize, wow, I'm in a way over my head. What am I doing? Why? You didn't pray about it. You didn't do anything. You just thought, no, I'm just going to do this. And that's kind of what they were doing. They did this twice. The third time, they're kind of like, you know, we're, we're going to take this a little more seriously. We just lost 40,000 men. Um, Lord, <laughs> we're, we're going we're to expect you to do something here. Verse 27, and before, and the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. This is the only time this Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. It's the only time it's really mentioned here. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days. That's why we say this happened in the middle back, back toward uh, the beginning of, of Judges. So it's not chronological. It's just saying, hey, this happened too. It's kind of um, an afterthought of the whole book, saying, oh, remember this story. Don't forget this one. Put that one in there. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sometimes not even that. It's sad how quick, right? And, and you know, we shouldn't be surprised at that. Right. I mean, <laughs> I mean, when, when things go wrong, they can go wrong really quick. You know, I think if I would have told you that you'd be paying close to five, six dollars a gallon gas two years ago, you would have thought I was nuts. Things change. So here it says, shall we go once more? They're asking the Lord against our brothers in battle, the people of Benjamin. Or should we just cease? Should we just take our losses, cut our losses, and go home? This doesn't seem to be working out, Lord. We're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to exact vengeance on the people that took advantage of this poor lady, but we've already lost 40,000 men. And look at what the Lord says. And the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So the Lord comes in and says, no, this is going to be the day. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. So God gave them wisdom this time. They took a little more time to pray about things. Verse 30, And the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. So they kind of lured them out. They drew them out. And as at other times they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, 
one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. So they killed about 30 men of Israel. So the Benjamites are thinking, hey, this is easy peasy. We're going to do this again the third time. And the people of Benjamin, verse 32, said, they are routed before us as the first. We got this. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out from their places from uh, Merah Gibeah. Verse 34, and there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all of Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjamites did not know what disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin. Notice it was the Lord that defeated Benjamin. It wasn't the rest of the tribes. I mean, they already tried twice, right? But this time it was the Lord who defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. And all who... And, and all, the, all were men who drew the sword. They were all warriors. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. They realized it. And the men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. And the men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that they was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel would turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about thirty men of Israel. They said, Surely they are defeated before us, as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjamites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noah as far as as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the, in the highways, and they were pursued hard to uh, uh, guide them, and 2,000 of them were struck down. So all, and it gives a summary, all the uh, who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor, but 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimnon and remained at the rock of Rimnon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men, beasts, and all that they found. And all the towns that they found were set on fire. This is Israel's first civil war, and it's a bloody one. And it's just, it's, it's, it's the consequences of sin. It's the consequences of people not doing what God had instructed them to do. And it's, it's tragic. But this is, this, is, this is what happens in life. 
when, when people despise the word of God, they despise God's wisdom, they despise his advice, and they do what is right in their own eyes. And, and this is a, a, a tragic, tragic um, portion of Scripture. But we come to the last chapter. And this is where Israel <laughs> tries to provide for the tribe of Benjamin, the people that they just fought against. Okay, so a title, Catch Me a Wife. And this is what happens. Verse 1, 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mitzvah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. In other words, these, these people are kind of sick. They're, they're, we're going to isolate them. We don't want anybody to give their daughters to them. Verse 2, And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened to Israel? They're sad. They're, they're, their whole country's torn apart, right? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. You, all, you always have part of the group that's the sympathizers. Okay, this is what this was. Verse 40, And the next day the people rose up early and built there an altar and burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? In other words, when we, when we called all these people to come and war with us, who didn't come? Who didn't come out? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to mitzvah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. In other words, whoever didn't show up and we gave the, the cattle call for everybody to come and fight, if you didn't show up, you're going to die. Verse 6, And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives, for those who are left? They were concerned because they made that silly vow saying, Oh, we're not going to give our daughters to them. Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for their wives. Verse 8. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord of, of, at, to Mitzvah? So who didn't show up to fight? And behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. So they, they kind of put their eye on them. For when the people were mustered, behold, no one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So they were kind of looked at as sympathizers. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants, inhabitants of Gabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is horrible what goes on here. Verse 11, this is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Gabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not yet known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at uh, Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Rimnon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time. So they thought, you know what? We don't want to be united or divided anymore. We want to reach out to these people. We feel they paid for uh, everything. They lost several thousand men. Uh, and Benjamin returned at that time. And they gave them the women whom they had saved alive, 
of the women of Jabesh Gilead. And it was kind of important in that culture to have a way of, of procreating your, your people and things like that. And if Benjamin didn't do that, it would just die out. So Israel was compassionate there. Um, but it says they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Verse 16, Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left? There's still 200 of them that don't have. And they said there, are, there, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin. That a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. So they're thinking of the, the greater portion, the greater good here of Israel. 18, yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters because we made that silly oath. <laughs> For the people of Israel had sworn, cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, behold, there is yearly a, a feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh. I mean, it just gets worse and worse. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And go to the land of Benjamin. So here's the plan. And notice they don't inquire the Lord about any of this. This is their right. This is the, the Lord's not here. And they're, they're, they're doing what's right in their own eyes. Verse 22. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say, grant them graciously to us. Because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them else you would now be guilty. So they're, they're kind of saying, hey, you know what? It's not, not, not our problem. Verse 23, And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to the number from the dancers whom they carried off. Now some people say, well, how do they know who were the virgins and who weren't? Well, some of the, the rabbis say that, and this isn't Bible, this is just, you know, tradition. If there was alcohol on their breath, they probably weren't. A virgin. <laughs> that's what they would decide. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of silly, but that's, that's one of the ways. Now, like I said, that's not Bible, but that's, that's what some of the Jewish tradition says. They could figure it out that way. And so, it says, and the, the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number and from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. It almost sounds like, wow, this ended so well, right? It just, it just like paints this nice little bow around the whole thing. I mean, we just read this horrible account in Scripture. Oh, but they just went home, and everybody's with their whole family, and they're just in front of the fire, and they're just having a good old time. But then you hear verse 25, at the end here, in those days there was no king of Israel. Just remember, it just, just speaking truth to us, right? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You know, I mean, like I said, this was a tragic read. It's not something you'd want to read for morning devotions. 
Um, it's, 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 but it is the Word of God, you know, and, and you, we're committed to teaching through books of the Bible. But you can see what happens when sin just runs rampant and runs wild without any, without any restraint. And, you know, when, when, you, when you have people doing what's right in their own eyes, okay, this is what we get. You know, when you... <laughs> I, I remember watching interviews with people who were rioting and breaking into Macy's and all these places in New York City and just walking out with all kinds of stuff. You know, they broke into Best Buy and Costco. They walking out with TVs. <clears throat> and a news reporter said, don't you think this is wrong? No, I need this, man. I need this. And they'd run off. Like, in their mind, they're not doing anything wrong. They've really convinced themselves that this is okay that it doesn't matter if it's harming the shop owner that's okay he owns a shop he probably has more than i do exactly and see we we, we, we're beginning to see this even in our our political uh mess of a government right now right i mean we see where rich people are demonized. They shouldn't be rich. We have to take their money and give it to these people who aren't rich. doesn't matter if they didn't earn it. That's irrelevant. It's not fair that they have billions of dollars. That's just not right. Well, says who? I mean, why is it right that the government tax us millions and millions and millions of dollars to the point where it's such a complicated system you can never even understand it. I mean, do you ever think about that? Why, why do they do that? Why is there so much resistance to putting all the stuff down on a little postcard, you know, the tax returns like they were supposed to do? Just put it on a little postcard. Just make it real simple. Just a flat tax and just real simple. Well, if you did that, if you actually did that, do you know how many politicians and how many people in Washington would lose money? I mean, what do you think you're doing with all of our tax money? I mean, do you really think it's going to the causes? You think it's going to the causes that they're saying it's going toward? I don't think so. I mean, some of the highest taxed states, California being one, Hawaii. I mean, you look at the roads, they're horrendous. They're horrendous. It's like, where, where is the money going? <laughs> you know, I mean, because it's not going to what you're saying it's going to. I mean, they've been building this, this monorail system in Hawaii for years. It's billions of dollars over budget. And they're, they're still like, well, we got to raise our taxes more because we need more money to complete the, the, complete the rail system. It's like, really? And... Most people are just kind of drinking the Kool-Aid and going along with it. See, the problem is, is these are people who are acting without God. There, there is no godliness in them at whatsoever. And what do they do? Instead of turning to God and asking him for help and wisdom on how to get this nation back on track, they're finding their own solutions. What seems right in their own eyes. Unfortunately, the solutions are sometimes worse than the initial problem. 
And the book of Joshua started off with Israel as one people. They were united in vision. They were united in spirit. And here we have the book of Judges ending with Israel fractured into many pieces, many parts. And what they needed was a leader. They needed a king, but not just a king. They needed the king of kings. You know, we, 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 we buy into this. We think, oh, if we would just elect the right person, everything would be fine. No. No, that's not the end game. That's not how it works. We've just gone through that, right? When people disobey, their society will decay. When darkness abides, leadership, godly leadership, must arise. See, and that, that it sounds like, you know, despair, like, wow, just give it up. But you know what? This is where the gospel comes in. This is why Christ died. This is why Christ was born and, and, and lived 30-some years here on this earth. Why? To give an answer to behavior like this. That it doesn't have to be allowed to continue. It doesn't have to continue in our own hearts. But there's an answer. God sent his son to live and to die on a cross. Why did he do that? Because of the consequences of sin. The Bible says that the soul that sins will what? Die. And God created us. He loves us. He, he, he desires us to be forgiven for our sin. The only way that can happen You're not going to work your way to heaven. You couldn't do enough to dig yourself out of the hole that you find yourself in. Our sins are great before a holy God. And if you're sitting here tonight thinking, well, I'm not that bad. Well, you know, if you've ever told one lie, guess what? You're a liar. If you've ever taken anything irrespective of its value that's not yours, guess what? You're a thief. If you've ever used God's name in vain, the Bible calls that blasphemy. You're a blasphemer. God's standard is very clear. And we all have sinful tendencies in our hearts, and that's why Christ had to come and he had to die for chapters like this. I mean, we we have to be reminded of God's gift of Christ, our need of a Savior, because we can't save ourselves. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 8 and 9, that we're, we're, we're not saved by our works. Saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. And why would God say that? Because he doesn't want you going to heaven boasting. Can you imagine if we were saved by our own works? Why are you here in heaven? Oh, you know, I, I fed the poor for 20 years down there. You know, I deserve to be here. What'd you do? Oh, I, I helped. Blah, blah, blah. We'd, we'd be bragging in heaven for all eternity about how good we are to be there. 
But you know what? The Bible says no. There's none that does good. There's not even one that seeks after God. It's only when God recreates us and, and, and he, he, he transforms our heart, he takes the, the blinders off our eyes that we can see the glorious gift of Christ and our need of a Savior. The problem is, you know, we're all in the pool and we all think that we can tread water forever. We, we're the greatest of swimmers. Eventually, we're going to start drowning. That's when you need the lifeguard. The problem is a lot of people in society today don't realize they're drowning. They don't realize that they're in over their head in sin. They're not despairing over their sin. We live in days where people rejoice over their sin. They mock the idea of God. They, they take God out of society and put him on the shelf. And as we saw in Judges, so we see in our country, this is what happens. You have chaos, you have despair, you have anarchy, you have innocent people being hurt, no one being held accountable. And that's why Christ came. That's why Christ came and lived a perfect life and died on a cross so that we could look to Christ and say, hey, Lord, forgive me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Because I admit my sin before a holy God. And I need your forgiveness. I need salvation. I need to be saved. See, if everything was just good, if everything was always just rosy, yeah, you probably wouldn't need a Savior. But the Bible says our hearts are wicked and desperately evil. And that's what we've seen play out here tonight. I mean, I almost feel like I have to apologize for reading these portions of Scripture to you tonight. <laughs> because they're hard things to hear, but you know what? It's, it's reality, and it's, it's true. This is where the heart goes without God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you that we, <laughs> by your grace, have been shielded by some of this behavior and lord maybe we haven't lived evil to the extent at which we read it tonight but lord it does go on in the world it happens all around us every day and father wickedness and, and evil are are just that they're they're the enemy of god and the only way to resolve that conflict is to come to christ to bring our sinful hearts before Christ and admit, yeah, Lord, we are what you call us. We are sinners, and we need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus is that Savior, and I want to put my life in his hands. I want him to forgive me of my sin. When you pray that prayer, when you ask God to do that from a sincere heart, when you're recognizing your own sinfulness before a holy God, He will hear your prayer. He will change your heart. He will forgive you. And He'll give you new desires to live for Him each and every day in a way that's pleasing to Him. 
And Lord, we do pray for our nation. We pray that you would break through all the chaos and even touch the hearts of our president and vice president and the Congress and everything that's going on, Lord. It just seems like up is down and down is up and right is wrong and wrong is right. Everything's chaotic. But that's what you said would happen when a country takes God and puts him on the shelf. And so, Lord, I pray as a church, as those who know Christ, as those who live for Christ, that we would be bold in our testimony. We wouldn't shy away, even though it's politically incorrect to, to mention Jesus or Christ in a public venue even. Lord, I pray that we'll be bold and that we will point people to the Savior. Because there's nowhere else to go. And Father, we thank you for our study through this entire book of Judges. And, and Lord, we do pray that you would uh, remind us of the truths that we learned and solidify our hearts together as the body of Christ that we would press forward and be used for your glory. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.